Please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. If you have one of the Pew Bibles on you, it is page 795 and 796. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'd invite you to go grab one off of one of the tables in the back as we follow along through the Word of God this morning. But again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Then they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. 
But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and to your word, desperate to hear from you, knowing that our tendency is like the tendency of the people in this passage, to harden our hearts to your correction and to your word. So we pray that you would do work by your spirit in our hearts. Open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears, shape us, O God, more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray, amen. You may be seated. There's almost nothing more frustrating than unclear directions. Now, I say almost because there are more frustrating things. Now, I love Ikea. Any other Ikea lovers in here? Maybe it's the piece of me that is Swedish. And Ikea, if you didn't know, is a Swedish company. The first Ikea I ever went to was actually in Scandinavia, in Norway, not Sweden. But I love Ikea. But if you've ever put together a piece of Ikea furniture that came in a box, you might admit that occasionally marriage counseling is needed after that experience. But it's not just Ikea furniture, is it? Life is complicated. Decisions are hard. Life is messy. And as Christians, we confess that trying to apply God's word to our hearts and to our lives is an often complicated and messy thing. We confess that the whole word of God, all 66 books, if you have the Pew Bible, all 1,042 pages applies to our lives. And no part of our life is left untouched 
by the word of God. And yet sometimes we struggle to apply the word of God in the everyday and practical and often complicated and messy parts of our life. However, the majority of our struggles with obedience to God is not that his directions are unclear to us. And it's not that his word is overly complicated for us. In fact, though God's law touches every area of our lives in one way or another, it's also the case that you can state the whole of what God's law requires in one sentence. One sentence that a small child can memorize and understand. We are to love God with our whole being and also love our neighbor as ourselves. When Jesus was asked in Matthew 22 in our New Testament reading, which was the great commandment, Jesus said these two things, love for God and love for neighbor, and that these are at the center of all of God's commandments, the law and the prophets. I think in all the complications of following God in a complicated world with our own complicated lives and complicated hearts, two simple questions that we need to go back to day in and day out, week in and week out. How is your love for God? How is your love for others? Again, it's not that these things are overly complicated. We can ask even that most simple and basic of questions about our lives and see that often our love is frail, our love is weak, our love is misdirected. Speaking for myself, it's amazing how my love is drawn to just about everything but God and others. My love is so often turned in on myself. We see in our passage today that God's people in Zechariah's day had lost sight themselves of these two most basic and simple commandments. These two commandments which frame so much of the teaching of the minor prophets that we have seen over and over and over again. In the midst of all of their religious activity in their day, they had forgotten the heart of true religion, love for God and love for neighbor. Verses one through three, if we dive into chapter seven, this first paragraph here sets the stage for us. It's the fourth day of the ninth month of the fourth year of King Darius. Again, because we know about the reign of King Darius, we can place this day exactly, this Declaration from the Lord was on December 7th, 518 BC. This passage, when we see that date, takes place roughly two years after the visions that we have seen through the front part of the book of Zechariah, and about, again, two years after the call from Haggai to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So after these two years, work has been going on. Noticeable change and development in the building of the temple would have been able to be be seen by the people. And in this rebuilding of the temple and probably some renewed hope as they're seeing progress, the city of Bethel, located about 12 miles to the north of Jerusalem, sends a delegation down to Jerusalem to ask a question of the prophets and the priests at the temple. You see that question in verse 3. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, this might seem like an odd question. Why are they asking about fasting? I thought this was about the temple. But here, a little bit of historical context helps us. After Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people had been carried off into exile about 70 years before these 
events, the people of God began holding fasts to mourn and to remember the different events of the destruction of Jerusalem. Between these two chapters here in Zechariah, we actually hear of four different fasts. The fast of the fourth month, fifth month, seventh month, and tenth month. So they had a number of different fasts. The fourth month, it was a fast remembering the last time a Davidic king sat on the throne in Jerusalem. The fifth month, the one they ask about, commemorates and remembers that in the fifth month, the temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. The seventh month remembered the assassination of Gedaliah, a former governor of Judah and Jerusalem. And then the fast of the 10th month commemorated the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege against the city of Jerusalem. So again, almost 70 years after these events, the people of God are still kind of month in and month out throughout the year holding these fasts to remember the destruction of Jerusalem, to weep together, to mourn that that had taken place. And so it makes sense here that they ask about the fifth month in particular. Again, the fast of the fifth month was the fast where they remembered the destruction of the temple. And so now as the temple is being rebuilt, they're coming and they're asking this question, do we still need to fast the destruction of the temple if the temple is now becoming more complete? Can we, can we stop that fasting, stop that remembering, and now look, look forward as we're looking at the rebuilding of the temple. But interestingly, if you go to verse 4 and then through the rest of chapter 7 and 8, notice that the Lord does not give them a direct answer to their question. God does this so often in scripture. He could just simply give a yes or a no answer to their question. Should we keep fasting? Yes, keep fasting or no, stop fasting. But what does the Lord do? He takes this as an opportunity to dive into the heart of his people to reveal something that's going on, something that they had missed in their obedience to God. They cared about this ritual. They cared about this activity. But God said, I care about your heart. I care about what's going on inside of you that is disconnected from what you're doing outwardly. God God was more concerned about who and what they loved than about their fasts and about their religious rituals. So the big idea from these two chapters is that we need a more sober awareness of our lacking love and a joyful adoration of God's fervent love. We need a more sober awareness of our lacking love and a joyful adoration of God's fervent love. And we'll break that up into two. Chapter seven is going to show us our lacking love. Chapter 8, God's fervent love. So first, let's dive in more in chapter 7. So we see that we need a more sober awareness of our lacking love. And again, we see these two categories that popped up throughout the minor prophets. Love for God, love for others. In verses 4 through 7, the emphasis is on their lack of love for God. Say to all the people and all the land, all the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Again, this is God speaking. When you were doing all that activity, when you were fasting, when you were mourning, was that for me? Says the Lord. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves, 
and drink for yourselves? Again, they prized ritual, but not out of a love for God. In fact, it was more out of a love for themselves. They made their fasting, their feasting, and everything about them. We need to be careful of this too. It is so easy to make our religious life so much more about ourselves than about God. We can make our religion about our image, about our influence, about our pleasures and our preferences when we should be God-oriented and not me-oriented. We tend to love ourselves far more than we love God. And I think our capacity to take even things like Sunday mornings, our singing, our, our prayers, our time in the word of God, and make it more about me than about God, that capacity is astounding to us. Even in this time, our minds and our hearts are so preoccupied by our loves, by our lives, by our pleasures, by our schedules. Even while we sing praises to God, we make it about us. But this wasn't a new temptation, was it? It was a constant warning by the prophets, even before the exile, that God does not take pleasure in empty, heartless ritual. In verse 7, the Lord reminds them that he had said these exact same things to them, even before the exile, even while Jerusalem and the surrounding land was flourishing. God was warning them. Have I not told you these things before? In other words, this was a lesson that they should have learned, but a lesson that they had not yet learned. And have we learned that lesson? Just as they failed to love God, they failed also to love their neighbor. The Lord goes right to their lack of their love for neighbor with a familiar command in verses 9 through 10. God, again, like we've seen again over and over, commands justice and mercy which manifest themselves in a right treatment of the most vulnerable of their society, the widow, the fatherless. Those are people who had no ability to provide for themselves. They were to care for the sojourner, those who were outsiders. They lacked security. They were dwelling in a foreign land. They were to care for the poor, those who had no resources to care for themselves. And in that day, often people that were crippled or disabled and unable to work, people that needed to depend on others, for their food and for their livelihood. But instead, they cared about fasts, feasts, and ritual, but neglected love. They needed again to hear the words that Amos declared in Amos chapter 5. When Amos said, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and all of these sacrifices, no, I will not look upon them. I will not accept them. But what does the Lord say? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The Lord does not desire ritual disconnected from a love for God, but nor does he want a ritual that is disconnected from our love and concern for other people. How are we doing at this, Living Stone Church? Even if we don't ultimately and oppress the vulnerable in our society and world? Do we do the opposite? Do we seek to bring them aid? Not only are the vulnerable more easy to exploit, they're also easier to neglect and forget. Love is always a costly thing, but it is especially costly to love those people for whom we know it is going to cost our time. It is going to cost our patience it's going to cost our alone time and our pleasure. 
It's going to cost our resources to love them. Loving the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor is to love people that are not going to give back to you. But people that you will only give to and love and care for because they're made in the image of God. And they are called people that we are called to love and care for. Love is not always easy. It is sometimes easier to, easy to love your friends, those who are like you, those who require little from you. But do we love those who are harder for us to love? But God calls us to this kind of love. And I think it's easy to make love some big nebulous idea about loving the vulnerable or caring for other people. It's easy, right, to spend more time posting about generic issues on Facebook than to actually spend your time loving that neighbor of yours who is struggling, or to love that person who is sitting in the pew next to you, who is struggling and wrestling and mourning, and to actually love real people. It's one thing to love neighbor in concept, but we're not called to love neighbor in concept. We are called to love neighbor in actuality. As the book, The Art of Neighboring, puts it, we need to put flesh on this command. And by putting flesh on it, that means that we are to love actual people. And I think a start for us is to get to know actual people, to get to know our neighbors and those around us so that we might love them and care for them. Then going on in this passage in verses 11 through 14, the people are reminded of what happened to the previous generation when they failed to listen to God's commandments. Again, he's saying, this isn't new. I told you this before, and I want you to remember what happened the last time my people ignored these commands. We're told that they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder. That's like imagery of of a bull that is refusing to have a yoke put on his shoulder. It keeps turning away and walking from its owner. No, don't put that yoke on my shoulder. I don't want to do that. And often we're like that. We say, no, God, I don't want, I don't want to do that. I keep turning away from God's commands and God's law. It says they stopped their ears like a little kid putting their finger in their ears. Nah, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. They made their hearts diamond hard. They were unwilling to be challenged by God's word. Having your sin exposed is hard and it's uncomfortable, isn't it? But the question always is, how will we respond when our sin is brought to light? We're either going to harden our heart or we can accept the rebuke and we, we can repent and turn to God. But that is not what these people had done. So the prophet reminds them of the consequences. Verse 12, the great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, as I called, they would not hear So as they called, I would not hear. God is saying, they're not listening to me. Do they think that I'm going to listen to them? Verse 14, I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. The land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro. And the pleasant land was made desolate. Again, that repeated phrase there, the repeated word is desolate. The land was destroyed. It was left vacant and empty because of God's anger toward them over their unrepentant hearts. But remember those fasts that they were keeping. Let's let's go back to those for just a moment. Those fasts were supposed to be a reminder to them of what? The fasts were not just a reminder of the destruction of Jerusalem itself. The fasts were a reminder of the consequences of not listening to God and his commands, of what happens when you turn your shoulder to the command of God to love him 
and love others. Those fasts should have been a reminder to them that they were susceptible to the exact same things as the generations that had gone before them. And do they think that they would be spared the same fate if they did not turn to God? The meaning of the fasts were lost on them. They kept them. They kept doing them. They did the ritual, but they forgot what it was about. And we might think, how could you possibly miss that? But how often do we miss what's right in front of our face? The same warning is given to us in God's word. We read of the same thing, the destruction of Jerusalem, what happens when God's people harden their hearts. And are we reminded of the fact that we often lack love like they lacked love and that we are susceptible to the same exact things as them? And that is why we need a more sober awareness of the lack of love in our hearts. Let us not be blinded to what is right in front of our faces. But then in chapter 8, the Lord shocks them and the Lord shocks us. Or at least this should be shocking to us in chapter 8. Look at the first words out of Zechariah's mouth in chapter 8. This is in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Jealousy is used in multiple ways in scripture. It can be a bad thing when it refers to envy or rivalry or resentment that we have towards other people when they have what we wish we had. But here in its use of God, it is used as a powerful declaration of God's deep, zealous, fervent affection and love for his people. Kelvin noted that with the use of the word for here, jealousy takes on a new meaning. And it means that God is not jealous against his people, but he is jealous for his people. He says this is a picture of God's concern and affection for them. To quote Calvin, he said, God burned with wrath against all the enemies of his church as he regarded his church with singular love. Notice how shocking this reversal is from what we saw in verse 12 of chapter 7. In verse 12 in chapter 7, we saw that God had great anger because of the sin and lack of repentance of his people. But now God states with an even stronger superlative that he is jealous with great jealousy. He had great anger, but now he's jealous with great jealousy. In Hebrew, this is a way of saying that he was very greatly jealous. He had great anger, but very great jealousy, love, and desire for his people. It's like what Psalm 30 tells us, that God's anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. God's love is a very great love for his people. We need a more joyful adoration of God's fervent love. Though our love lacks, God's love overflows and abounds in greatness. And then look at what God's fervent love for his people does through these verses. God gives promises in verses three through eight in this rapid fire series of statements, which all begin, thus says the Lord. Verse three, God promises his presence. He says he will dwell with them 
they will be called a faithful city. The city that had turned away from God is now a faithful city because God is with them. God dwells among them. Then in verse 4, God promises peace. So he promised presence and now peace. Coming out of exile, these people would have been completely aware that it was the elderly and children who were most vulnerable to the destructive effects of war. But look at this picture that God gives to his people. That there will be old people, old men and old women, again, sitting with their canes in the streets of the city, talking and drinking tea together or whatever they would have done in 518 BC. And their children who are scattered around the, seats, around the streets, running around and, and playing, jumping rope, or again, whatever you did in 518 BC. But this picture is of this city that had been utterly devastated and destroyed. Picture a war-torn city in a different part of the world where the, the buildings are rubble, the streets are abandoned because people are afraid to step out into the streets because they know it's going to endanger their very lives. But here, this city that had been flattened in rubble, God is saying, the elderly are going to sit in peace. Children are going to play again. I'm going to give peace to my people, presence and peace. Then in verse 16, as if this wasn't enough, there's this wonderful statement that this all seems too good to be true. Is this marvelous in your sight? You can translate that word also as incredible or in a way like beyond belief. Is this, is this beyond belief? Is this too good to be true for you? Then he says, it can't be too good to be true if it's not too good to be true for God. Is this too amazing and incredible for God to accomplish and for God to do? No, he promises it and he will bring it to pass. Then in verse 7, God had promised presence and peace. Now he promises people. The three Ps. Get it drilled into your head. This is so important. He promises that they will be his people. And he will be their God. This promise that they shall be my people and I will be their God is the central promise of all of God's covenants in scripture. That we will be God's. And we can understand that. We will belong to him. But it's the flip side of that that should absolutely floor us. Not only are we God's, but he says he will be ours. God will be ours. Is there any greater promise that God could possibly give us than to give us himself? But that is precisely what he does in his covenant promises. And when we take these three promises together, presence, peace, and people, this is the great hope of all of scripture. It is a picture for God's people of the restoration and the recreation of what was lost by sin in the fall. We were created to dwell with God in his presence, with peace as his beloved people. But all, though all those things were lost and ruined by the fall, the refrain of God's promise again and again is that what was lost will be regained. What was lost will be restored and recreated, but given in an even greater fullness in the new heavens and new earth than even Adam and Eve had ever experienced in the garden. We are given presence, peace, and we are called God's people, and he is ours. Can you imagine a greater love than this? A greater love than a holy and just covenant God restoring lost sinners to himself. Not only forgiving us, but making us his and making himself ours. 
If you are in Christ, meaning if you have trusted in him, then what is God's disposition toward you? We can even use anthropological or human language here and ask the question, how does God feel toward you? What do you think of that? When you think of your heavenly father, what is his disposition toward you? Often, if I'm honest, I imagine that God merely tolerates me, that God puts up with me. Of course, he's not going to send me to hell because Jesus died in my place and I trusted in him. But reality, God is just up in heaven, always frustrated with me because I just keep turning back to sin and my faith isn't as strong as it ought to be. And I'm really just a huge disappointment to my heavenly father. But maybe we need to hear this more often. If you are in Christ, then every single drop of God's wrath and anger against you has been poured out on Jesus. And guess what that means? None of it remains for you. Not one drop of God's wrath and anger remains on those who are in Jesus Christ. But what does remain? God's love. Hear this. God loves you. God fervently and deeply loves you. In fact, he loves you more than you could ever love anyone or anything on this earth. His love is the truest and deepest love. If you are his, he has loved you from eternity. If you are his, he has loved you before the first star was breathed into existence. If you are his, he loved you before your very first breath, and he will love you to your death, and he will love you for eternity. He loved you by sending his son for you, and he loves you by keeping you. Now, I think we are always in danger of thinking wrongly of God's love, but I can confidently say, That we are never in danger of thinking too highly or too much of God's love. And if you need to hear it from someone other than me, you're thinking, James, this doesn't sound very reformed. We should talk about the wrath and glory of God more often. Let John Owen convince you for just a moment. John Owen writes in his book, Communion with God, which I know we're always recommending books, but if you want a book that will just stir your heart for love of God and to just bask in his love for you. Communion with God by John Owen is one of the best devotional books you'll ever pick up. But in that book, he writes, the father loses the company of his people because they are so ignorant of his love to them. His saints keep thinking only of his terrible majesty, his severity and greatness. And so their hearts are not drawn to him in love. We must learn to think of his everlasting gentleness and compassion. We must remember his kind thoughts toward us, which have been from eternity. Let us remember how eager and willing he is to accept us. If we did this, then we would not be able to bear one hour's absence from him. And this is on the front of your worship guide, this next part. Let this then be the first thought that we have of our father, that he is full of eternal love to us. Let me say that one more time. Is this the first thought you have when our God comes to your mind? Let this then be the first thought that we have of the Father, that he is full, abounding, overflowing, and eternal, which means never changing and never ending, love for you. 
Let our hearts and thoughts be filled with his love to us, even though many discouragements may lie in our way. Now, through the rest of chapter 8, we see things that we've seen a lot of in the last couple of books in the Minor Prophets, so I'm not going to dive into them with as much detail. If you want to learn more about strengthening your hands for the work of the temple, go listen to our sermons through Haggai or the beginning of Zechariah. I just want to give us broad brushstrokes here through the rest of Zechariah chapter 8. Here in chapter 8, we see God's covenant promises laid out again with a series of reversals. Things that are turned around, flipped upside down, or maybe right, right side up the way that they always ought to have been. In verses 9 through 13, it's a reversal of fruitlessness to fruitfulness. They had fruitless days where their labor brought them nothing. There was no wage for man, no wage for beast. But then the Lord reverses this in 11 through 13 with all this agricultural language, which is so fitting with fruitlessness and fruitfulness that there will be a, a sowing of peace as if the Lord is taking seeds of peace and scattering it across his land and across his people. The vine will give its fruit, the ground its produce, the heavens shall give their dew. They will water the earth and the earth will be fertile and fruitful again. Fruitlessness to fruitfulness. And in verses 14 through 17, there's a reversal of disaster to goodness. There's this kind of repeated language about God's purposing something, where God purposed to bring disaster against his people. He says now he has purposed to bring good to his people. God is not against his people. He is for them. And verses 18 through 19, a reversal of fasting to feasting. This is especially significant concerning their question was about fasting in the first place. He says, those feasts, those fasts that you're asking about, all that mourning you're asking about, one day I'm going to take all of that mourning, all of that sorrow, all of that sadness, and I'm going to turn it to joy and celebration and feasting. And then the last reversal, verses 20 through 23, it's a reversal of exile to gathering. Exile to gathering, where they had been scattered among the nations. Not only are they brought back from the nations, but notice that the nations are kind of brought back with them. They were scattered to the nations. The nations come back. There's this imagery of just how abundant this is. There's 10 people who's grabbing onto the, the coattails of this Jew saying, let me come with you. God is with you. Let me come with you to your land. And in this, we see not just this picture, only sometimes we, we minimize this and make this just about this return to the, the physical land of Israel. But this is something that is pictured for us of the new heavens and the new earth. All this language in here, we see language of people and nations and tongues right here in Zechariah 8. Does that remind you of any place in scripture? Revelation chapter 7, where people from every nation, tribe, people, and language are gathered together in the presence of God, bringing joyful praise to our God. Again, exile to gathering, looking forward to this day where God will gather his people from the farthest ends of the earth and bring them to himself. And it's in these loving promises of God that he sets again in front of his people a call to stir them to faithful obedience. And all these promises, God reissues his call to live for him That's the language of the rebuilding of the temple. As we saw in Haggai, it's all about 
loving and desiring the glory of God to dwell in the midst of his people. So he's saying, work toward that again. Work for me. And then he again gives this call to love our neighbor in verses 16, 17, and 19. A call to pursue justice through truth and peace. And that word peace is the word shalom, to to pursue rightness, what is good and whole. What's important for us to see, though, in chapter 8 is that these commands which are reissued to them are embedded in the midst of all of these loving promises of God. If we desire to grow in our obedience, which we ought to because we know that our love lacks, it's not merely going to be by remembering how bad we are and trying really hard to fix it with our own efforts and our own capabilities. This gives us a picture that growth and obedience comes alongside a growing acquaintance with God's character and God's promises. We grow as we keep our eyes fixed on his character and his love and his works and a vision of all that he promises us in the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. So if you want to live for God, grow in acquaintance with his love. So we see in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. In the end, Zechariah never really answers their question, does he? Not at least the question they were asking. Probably the question they should have been asking, but not the one they asked. He never tells them whether or not they're supposed to continue the fasts or not. Instead, he points them to what is more significant. He points them beyond their rituals, beyond their fasts, beyond their feasts, beyond all the things they do. He points them inwardly to their hearts. He reveals the frailty and lack in their love and their susceptibility to the same heart issues as every generation that had gone before. But even then when he showed them their own lack of love, he turned their eyes to behold God's fervent, overflowing, abundant, and deep love. Brothers and sisters, our love lacks. Our love lacks. But praise be to God that God's love abounds. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your love which has been poured out to us in Jesus Christ. Your love that before the foundation of the world predestined us for adoption as sons. Your love, O Father, which sent your only begotten Son into the world to die for us, your love which keeps us, preserves us, and your love which promises that we will dwell with you for forever. God, give us hearts that long for that above all other things. Hearts that are not distracted by the things of this world, our, our concerns, our schedules, but hearts that are inflamed with love for you because of your great love for us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.